Thank you, Carol. Well, real quickly before we uh, jump in, let me, I, I meant, forgot to mention during our announcements that next week um, at uh, 4 o'clock, uh, Sunday, 4 o'clock, we're going to be having our next new members class. So if you are remotely interested in finding out what it means to be a member of Vintage Grace Church, we'd love for you to come out. We'll be having dinner. Uh, it'll be here. Um, we'll be having child care. Um, and basically, I'll just be sharing some of the who we are, what we are, why we are kind of stuff. And then you can decide if you want to be a member or not. And if you don't decide to be one, that's okay. You had a free dinner. So anyway, that's next week, um, 4 o'clock. It's about 6, six o'clock, 7 o'clock, I think. Yeah, this is probably not for new people. Uh, this, you know, this is going to get behind the tapestry a little bit, if that makes sense, to find out kind of yeah, uh, what, what we really are, what we're really about, that kind of stuff. So um, if, if, if you know someone new, we're going to be doing another Taste of Grace in, in probably in a few months or so, maybe around uh, in de- maybe in December, January. That would be a little bit more appropriate for brand new people. So, if you don't know anybody new, find someone before There you go. I like it. I like it. Well, as you read in uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, two this morning, uh, we've been in series in, in 1 John, and uh, uh, the title in this series is Surpassing um, Story, or Surpassing uh, Story or Narrative. Um, and uh, I wanted to start with a, a story of a, a little boy um, that when he was, uh, you know, out playing in his uh, family's uh, on their property one time, was going along and he fell through some woods into a well and while he was down there it was really dark and he was really terrified of the dark and um, he he encountered some animals and some creatures while he was down there and it was this just this moment in his life of just sheer terror that really just sort of immobilized him as, as a person well later in the story he and his family, or he and his mom and dad had gone to see a movie, and on the way out, they're, they're confronted with somebody who um, wanted to, to rob them. And his dad tries to intervene, and the two of them are shot in front of him. And then later in the story, um, in, in his anger and rage, this little boy who becomes a man goes out and starts to, to train in, in, in ninja arts and different types of martial arts and different types of fighting and so on and decides that um, he was going to transform that paralyzing fear and use it against people that are evil and bad. You know who that is, right, by now? Batman. So we all have a backstory, right? And some of the best um, superhero movies and some of the best th- things, you really begin to kind of get the, as uh, oh, the old Paul Harvey, I don't know if y'all remember Paul Harvey, this is the rest of the story. Remember him? I loved his vocals and his, his pregnant pauses and all that, but he would tell us these backstories, and he would go along, and you wouldn't know who it was, and then he would reveal at the end. But here's the thing, we all have a rest of the story, we all have a backstory, we all have a narrative, we all have a story. Uh, it may be disjointed, it may be inconsistent, maybe even contradictory, but we all put together the pieces and try to tell a story. Um, for example, in some of these stories that drive us and make us who we are, we don't even realize. There's a story of one time when I was a uh, youth pastor in Columbia, South Carolina. 
uh, I was work- we were about to open a new facility, and so we had a one week left to finish this facility. We had a big program uh, planned, and I, I knew I was just going to be working day and night with everybody to try to get this done. Well, the pastor of that church decides it was a good idea to sign me and him up for some kind of uh, seminar that week. And I remember telling him, I, I'm not, I can't do that. There's no way I can do it. And he's like, well, too bad. I signed us up. I can't, you know. And so I had to go. And all week, I'm staying, I'm at the church till 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, having to go to this seminar I didn't want to go to. And all, I just got more and more and more angry. To the point, like, all I could see was red. I mean, I was like, you know, teetering on wrath. And I was like contemplating ways maybe I could hurt him and do all this stuff. Well, one of the other elders kind of picked up on this and kind of wanted to find out. And, so, and it became a really big mess. It became a really big rift between me and this pastor. And it was just a big problem. And later on, I remember kind of just with a friend, I don't know why, why this came up. But I was just kind of thinking back on it. I was like, man, why did I act so, why did I get so angry? The moment didn't warrant the anger that I was facing in that moment. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me. And it wasn't a thought. It was more of a feeling. So I remember feeling like that before. And sure enough, countless times, my brother, when I was growing up, put me in a million different little untenable, unsafe, sometimes terrifying circumstances where I felt cornered and backed in and it was fight or flight. And so, there was more to that story. It wasn't just that I'd been put in a bad situation by my boss and I, you know, had to work, you know, you know, 20 hours a day. It was, I, um, the rest of my story came and was a part of that instance. We all have backstories and we have stories that are driving us. That's what we said last week. And story is powerful. We are story-formed creatures, what we saw last week. And and that is why we saw last week, there is a battle in the world for stories. People people are trying to, who's going to tell history? Who's going to frame the narrative? Is is it going to be Fox News or is it going to be CNN or MSNBC, right? Look at the battle that's going on there. They're both telling different stories. There's a battle over stories. But here's what we said last week, and this is... The point of all of this, this whole series, is that in spite of, there is a surpassing story. And, and John says, we saw it. It was like from what we've been told from the beginning. In other words, from the beginning, from Genesis 1 on, we've, we've been told this story. And guess what? It's true. We have seen the climax. We've seen and touched and heard. He says, it's very visceral, very uh, touchy-feely. We've seen him. It is, this is all come to a climax in the person of Jesus. And it is a story that outshadows and supplants and surpasses all other stories. Well, then he turns and kind of turns towards the negative in this part of the letter. And he says, he says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. And if you just jump into his passage right there, you're going to do what a lot of Christians throughout uh, history have done. And they have taken that literally. 
don't love the world. And it might be in a couple of ways. And, uh, and he says, actually, don't love the things in the world as well. And so they said, nothing in this world is good. So it was just better for us to, to hunker down and wait till we get zapped out of here in some kind of rapture or something. Right? Or, like a lot of Christians, they said, well, this means that we need to completely separate ourselves and remove ourselves from the, the world, the evil, bad world out there around us. And that's what they do. And, they'll, and usually they'll hit pause on culture and in their lives. So like the Amish, for example, they still to this day have hit pause at whatever eight, was 18th century, whatever culture and world they lived in. And so they still ride around in horse and buggy. They don't do technology, but horse and buggies are technology. They're just not as good as a, you know, a Honda. But it's technology. But th that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to pull away from the world. Actually, I was just talking to some friends who we went to the same Bible college. And there was, you know, they had tried to shut out the world. And so we couldn't do certain things. We couldn't dance. We couldn't play cards. And there was like strict curfews. And, you know, it was almost like separate sidewalks for guys and girls kind of stuff, you know. And it, it, was, all, it was all an attempt to just shut out the world. I remember we had a, a dance. We weren't allowed to have dances. And so somehow this, the clubs that do these things, I don't know who the organizing body was, but they were able to get a, a dance approved, but they called it or an, organizing, an, or, what, an organized march or something. And it was line dancing, you know, and which is bad. You know, a bunch of white people. Yeah, anyway, it was rough. And, and, but yeah, it was a dance. But that's what, so are we supposed to just shut out the world? So if you just land here on that verse, you may go to that conclusion. But that's not where he's going. So what does he mean? Okay, I think John is actually calling us not to separate from the world, but rather not to be conformed to the world's narratives. And so in order to not be conformed to those narratives, to those impulses, and so on, we'll get into that, is, we, first of all, we need to see the reality of those narratives, um, the danger of them, and the source of them. But I'm going to call these narratives, and I'm stealing this from a friend of mine, nemesis narratives. Okay, so we need to see the reality of nemesis narratives. Um, you know, so every good story has a bad guy, right? The best stories have the best bad guys. I can remember growing up, my mom loved that show Dallas. Yeah, come on. A few of y'all sort of remember that. I'm going to get modern here, guys. If y'all know what I'm talking about, just wait a second. Okay? But like in Dallas, the nemesis was J.R. And everybody loved to hate J.R., you know? I mean, there's always a good bad guy who just can't seem to get rid of, right? Well, let's go modern. Let's go move fast forward. So if you've been watching Walking Dead, who, who's the nemesis, right? Negan. You know, and he, he, they didn't kill him. Like, you know, he's still alive. And he's going to come back and create problems because that's what nemesis do, right? And so here's the thing. Um, in the reality, though, hey, like in our world, there really are bad guys. There's really bad guys out there. Now, I want to be careful because this is a thing right now. I got a card in the mail. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to pick on uh, the Republican Party sent me a, a card. 
I don't know if y'all got this. And it said, um, it, it, it was uh, warning mo- mobs of angry liberals. Right? Like I was like shaking in my boots. You know, where's my rifle and my handgun? And, you know, I was, like, I was just really puzzled by this car. I'm like, really? Or it could have been a, you know, a, uh, it could have been a Democrat card that said, you know, you know, hordes of angry rednecks with guns. Right? And it's all a fear. It's like a fear narrative saying that, you know, those people over there are bad guys or whatever. Let me tell you, that that's not the problem. There is, a nemesis, there is a nemesis out there, and he is really bad, and he's seeking and roaming, seeking whom he can devour. Um, and, and here, look down in verse 18, he calls him the Antichrist. And now we really get sensational, because there's been a whole series of books and movies on the Antichrist, right? And like, remember Left Behind series? And uh, I remember this one video I saw. I was, uh, I don't even know if I was a Christian yet. It must have been produced either like mid-70s or late 80s. And there was a lady who uh, woke up and nobody was at the house. And she's looking around and, and she goes into the bathroom and, the, and this razor, which looked like, uh, almost, it was like this box. You know, it's like old school razor. It was in the um, sink and it was still it was like chattering around because it was running and everybody had just been this rapture kind of thing but you know these movies depict this uh nefarious enigmatic maybe charismatic figure that's going to come and lead the, all the evil hordes against in a, in a war against god and so on um but the, i don't think that's where he's going here and that, that may be true. We, uh, we don't have time now to get into eschatology and the, that kind of stuff. But he's really getting to another truth here. And, and something probably, I think, more frightening. Okay? Okay? And maybe it's true. We don't have time. But here in John's letter, he tells us clearly who the Antichrist is. At least, and he says, if you um, look with me in verse 22... He says, I don't know if this will be on the screen. In verse 22, who, who, is the, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. There's your Antichrist. There is your nemesis. It's those who've denied Jesus, who denied the story and have begun to buy a lie. So John tells us clearly that anyone who denies Jesus is the Christ, which is, okay, he's not just saying denies Jesus, but that Jesus is the Christ, which is the story that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the message that the gospel that he has come and will indeed defeat all enemies, the last of which is death. So it's a denial of the message. And, so, and also, any message that denies the message of Jesus, the word of God, is an anti-Christ message. It is a nemesis to the gospel. And there are countless 
variations of that counter message. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see, we'll mention this later, but it is in fact starts in Genesis 3. It's the very first message from Satan. Did God really say that? What does he say? He's supplanting a new story. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 16, if y'all remember this, uh, where Jesus um, asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, oh, you're Elijah, you're, you know, John, you know, they say all these things that people have been saying. And he turns to Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, Son of God. And he says, upon that, upon you, upon that, I will build the church. And then he starts to talk about how he's now going to go and die on a cross. And Peter's like, it says that Peter rebukes him. He says, you can't do that. I thought you were the Messiah. I just said you're the Messiah. You can't go die. And, and Jesus turns to him and says what? Get behind me, Satan. Like, Peter might have thought for a moment. I, mean, I haven't killed anybody. I don't have horns and a you know, pitchfork. How can you call me Satan? Why? Because he was resistant to the cross. He was resistant to the message of the gospel. He became antichrist. You see it? So there is the reality of nemesis narratives. And so we all, with that, we need to realize the danger of those narratives. We need to realize the danger of the nemesis narratives. And we, we saw this um, last week when I mentioned, when we talked about the Rwandan uh, genocide and how um, a, a radio broadcast was instrumental in reshaping history in the minds of the Hutus and began to frame a story that would eventually ignite in the killing of millions of Tutus. Tutsis. That was the power and the danger of story. Um, and, and here's the thing is, we can see the danger of just stories and their potential even in our personal lives. Um, here's there's an article um, in the Atlantic by a lady named Julie Beck. And she's talking about story and how we're formed by And it's a really good article. Um, I'm going to go with her all the way to her conclusions. But she's talking about just the danger of just stories. So listen, listen, it should be come up on the screen here, right? Yeah? Okay, it says, Once certain stories get embedded into the culture, they become master narratives, blueprints for people to follow when structuring their own stories. For better or worse, such, one such blueprint is the standard go to school, graduate, get a job, Get married. Have kids. That can be a helpful script in that it gives children a sense of an arc of life and shows them examples of tentpole events that could happen. But the downsides of standard narratives have been well documented. They stigmatize anyone who doesn't follow them to a T and provide unrealistic expectation of happiness for those who do. 
So he's saying these narratives that get formed in our culture can, can be helpful in some ways, but they can also be very dangerous. On the flip side, if you don't meet the narrative, you're, you're worthless. Or if all this stuff happens, it's supposed to be bliss, right? And I, I think that as a church, that's where we need to be thinking, what are the, the, the standard cultural narratives people have been kind of following like a, a carrot on a stick and once they get to a certain place, they've arrived. They're in Oakley. They live in Eagle Landing of all places. Yes. They have the two kids in the car and the dog. And they realize there's nothing. This isn't what it was promising to be. Well, but let's just say the best personal implications of stories can be really devastating. But they, there's also the spiritual implications I think are far greater and more dire. And John's getting... At this point in his letter, he really kind of ramps up and gets really serious and emphatic in his letter. And so if you, you know, if you, that's what most would say, you know, verses 12 through 14. There's a lot of discussion on his tenses. He's like, I am writing, I am writing. He talks about it in the present tense, and then he switches to the past tense. Everybody's like, what is going on here? And most of are now just kind of concluding. He is just kind of getting their attention. Look, listen up here. You know, guys, listen up. You believe the gospel. I need y'all to hear me and listen to me. And then he turns and, and goes into not loving the world and not uh, listening to these lies. Um, because there is serious danger in these false narratives. Why? Okay, well, there is no, no every narrative. Every story contains values, assumptions, and beliefs. Did you know that? Every story you read, every story you watch, every story you hear contains values and beliefs and assumptions. And those values and beliefs, so if we, if we adopt a story, do we don't just adopt a narrative, we adopt with it its values, we adopt with it its beliefs, and it's eventually the things that it does. And so, the danger he's getting at here is that these narratives, would, we would adopt the values of the narratives, and that we would adopt those belief systems, and so on. That is exactly what he is talking about when he says the word world. He's not talking about this dirt ball we live on. Who he's talking about, and he's not just talking about the inhabitants of this world or anything like that here. And he's going to get more and more negative in the letter about the concept of world. And it's this, it is an attitude, it is a, a system of narratives that assume values and, and beliefs and assumptions that are contrary to what God has said and, and wants us to do. That's what he means by world. And he's saying, don't love the world. Or as someone has translated this, don't set your affections on the narratives, values, and beliefs of this world. And so, um, there's serious danger in these false narratives. And, and specifically, he goes on to talk about um, that, this, these, that these are kind of fueled out of desires. If you look with me in uh, verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world. Notice, in, he says, for, he's now going to tell us what's in the world here. 
He's saying it's the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. One author put it this way about that. He says, um, specifically, the world is characterized by an unholy trinity of what the body longs for and the eyes itch to see and what people toil to acquire. And this toxic mix poisons and destroys. The world is not simply a passive entity, but a rival, but a rival for the allegiance for every person. All right? And, be, and to, because of this, one must not set his affections on the world. Matt uh, Waldock, Waldock, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's uh, with City Church in Manchester. He put it this way, and this is really a great quote. He says, These nemesis narratives are like a pillow over your faces, choking out the life-giving realities of the gospel. Gently suffocating us. But just as dangerous. So... We're on the positive. So John, verse 20 and 21, this should come up, says, but you, talking about those who've received the gospel, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He's like, you guys have received the gospel. And then he goes on to say, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. In other words, what, let the message, the, narr- the true narrative abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then it, uh, Paul kind of picks up the same thing, theme in Colossians chapter 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. In other words, watch out. There is nemesis narratives out there. And so the stories that shape us determine our values. What do we want most? What do we spend our time pursuing? Where do our minds go for pleasure? If Jesus is not the answer to those questions, he is not the Lord of our lives, says one guy. So, there's a reality of these narratives. And there's the danger of them. Where are all these narratives coming from? And so I I want to look at that uh, lastly. So we have the source of these nemesis narratives. And we've mentioned a lot of these already. But I just want to kind of be clear with these, okay? Well, the, the first, bring up my tree, my pretty tree here. Okay, the first um, source is the enemy. Does that come up? Yes, there we go. Um, and we've already mentioned this. You know, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are there in the garden, and God has given them clear instructions. He's, he's given them all of, everything they can need. And the enemy comes, and he doesn't come, you know, combating ideas. He doesn't say, God doesn't exist. You know, what is he, he suggests, did God really say that? Maybe there's another story. And let me tell you, this is what, there is an ultimate antichrist. There is an ultimate enemy. And let me tell you, he is spinning narratives. And he has been spinning them for a long, long time. Okay? But there's another source. And Paul talks about it, I mean, excuse me, John talks about it here as the world. 
right? So, and so there's other narratives coming in. It's the world's narratives. And, and we grow up hearing those narratives. We grow up in the culture of these narratives. Um, and, you know, for example, but think about narratives that have been changed and adopted even in, in our lifetimes. So, for example, the, our culture's stance on sex and marriage and these kind of issues, right? Uh, 50 years ago, it was illegal for a man to, to marry a man. And so on. I'm not trying to comment on that right now, other than to say how, in such a short period, did our culture change? How? I can tell you how. They started telling a story that began to get adopted in our culture. And that story caught on. The story of, you know, a person should be free. A person should be able to choose their own destiny and write their own story. A person should be able to do whatever they want and, and all these kind of ideas. Um, you know, so uh, Tim Keller kind of lists some of the cultural narratives that's been around out there. For example, individualism. That you, you should be yourself. Be your, be, have you ever heard this? Be true to yourself. Forget everybody else, but be true to yourself. A pluralism, which is um, only I. I mean, we, every individual gets to determine truth and what they believe. And, and there's no uh, absolute truth. There's nothing that should determine what we should do. Or there's freedom. I must be free to live my life and express myself however I want. Uh, and, and in that judgment, a value of that judgment is like the cardinal sin. You cannot judge a person. Um, see, all these narratives, these cultural narratives, have values. Materialism. If I have a lot of stuff, and good things, I will be happy. Or, um, you know, the, uh, he calls it history narrative. You know, new things are good, old things are bad. Um, or, like, he didn't, I added this one. How about the romance narrative? This is big in our culture. If I find my true soulmate, then, then I'll be happy. And if you don't find it, you don't find it in the, your spouse, just get a new one. You find your true soulmate. And now those are the narratives that spin, and we begin, to, we catch those, and we, we, it's the water we swim in. As a matter of fact, if you want to know how, your cultural narratives, and I'm looking at Paul back here in the back, who's just come home from Thailand, he's very aware of the different cultural narratives. If you want to know your, if you, that you are influenced by cultural narratives, or not go to another country and live there a little while and piss off some people with your narratives because you will okay uh it's culture shock that's what we call it but we we live and swim in a certain culture uh and uh, man and i are going to be going visiting ireland and um uh, next next uh, in january and uh we start we were just looking at th like things not to do if you're an american going to ireland and so one of the things never to do is like, don't say top of the morning to you. <laughs> don't order a car bomb. An Irish car bomb. So they, that's not, that's offensive. That's not okay. Yeah. So this is cultural narratives that we have. Anyway, and so we have these sources. The enemy is giving us narratives. The world is giving us narratives. But there's more to it than that. Um, we have our own hearts are spinning narratives. And, let me say, and this is, this is uh, 
I think that psychology is picking up on this. Uh, neurosciences are picking up on this. Sociological. Everybody's picking up on this. That, that there are certain... Bring up the next slide for me. As we, as you're, when you're a little child, you will begin to have experiences. And some of those experiences will be very powerful. Some of them very painful. Uh, they talk a lot about trauma and, those, and how those kind of things are really formative. I think equally with that, these, these experiences can be very good experiences. And, and as we get older, with little kids, be, little kids, if you ever notice, they rehearse narratives. They watch movies. They love to tell, hear stories told. But they're not really piecing together their own story. But as they become a teenager, then they start to try to make sense of the, all these things that they've experienced. And not only are they trying to make sense of the things that they personally experienced, but what the enemy has spun out there and what the world is telling them. And they're starting to put all this together. And some teenagers struggle to put that together. Have you seen it? It's called teenage angst. And, and they don't know. They, there's certain experiences they had that don't match with the world and what they think the world is telling them that it should be. And, and then they get in these really tough places. Half the teenagers are there most of the time. And, you know, if you're a teenager, I'm with you on that because I've seen it. I've been there. We've all been there. And you're trying to put together these pieces and try to say, where am I? And that's a part of being a teenager. So if you have teenagers, bless your heart. It's a hard process. And it's, you have to coach your teenagers on. So as that's happening, though, many of us are also utilizing what I'm going to call idolatry. And idolatry is, is to do and, and use anything in, in, in and of above God. So, in, in, or, idolatry is a, is in a mode of operation autonomous from God and self-sufficient from God. Talk about that a lot. So my autonomy, my self-sufficiency, I interpret and relate to my experiences. I begin to take the culture's and maybe even the enemy's narratives, and I began to spin my life, which will eventually begin to show itself in my values, my beliefs, my behaviors. And that is um, why understanding that these narratives are there, they can be very dangerous. Um, and they come from us, the world, and the enemy. Um, Ryan's kind of in conclusion. Um, the, the, the movies depicted this pretty well, actually, but in the books as well. It's the Lord of the Rings. Um, there's, one of the, there's a picture of where the king of Rohan, if you all remember this, the king of Rohan is under this dark curse. And um, he's got a friend. And his friend is actually named Wormtongue, aptly so. And Wormtongue has been for decades whispering into his ear bad narratives. Your, you know, your kingdom is going to fail. The enemy's strong, too strong for us. And, and, and you're getting older. 
you couldn't possibly deal with these things. I don't, you know, and, and he really depicts this well. And, then, and so you, you see this like visceral picture of this king who has bought all these lies. And his body and his life is just contorted around these lies and these dark truths that Wormtongue has just been feeding him a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. And then there's this great moment when Gandalf the Grey, supposedly, comes in, right? Y'all remember this? And he's, uh, he sneaks in his staff because he's acting like an old man or whatever. And then he confronts this king and, and, and confronts him with this picture of light. Remember we talked about last week that we shouldn't walk in the darkness but walk in the light? And in that he, he, you know, is this, you know, obviously there's magic and stuff in that movie, but this picture of him breaking these the lies, casting out Wormtongue, and freeing the king of Rohan. It's a really amazing picture. And that's, I think, what John is doing here. He's saying, you guys know the truth. Abide in the truth. What does he mean by abide? That, that means to dwell in, to live in, to camp out in, to understand, and to be transformed by the truth of the gospel. And so we need to understand the power that narratives have in our lives and in our hearts, and that we need to potentially go back, revisit core experiences and the things, how we put all that together. We need to look at what narratives we're allowing in and buying in our culture. We need to evaluate them. We're going to talk about all this later as we move forward. And then also, but more than that, we need, as, you, as they would do in a bank, I've heard this before, in a bank setting, they don't teach, they don't show a whole bunch of people a whole bunch of counterfeit dollars, right? You know that. They, would, they, they, they get their bankers so familiar with what a real dollar looks like that when a counterfeit comes along, it just smells like it. You just instinctually know it. And that's where, as God's people, we need to be rehearsing the gospel, 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 being in God's word, being in God's word, being in God's word, because the power of the gospel it has the power, surpassing power, to supplant and subvert these narratives. So, what's the driving narratives in your life? Some of them are going to be the cultural narratives. That, you know, it's, you know you're, you're entitled to happiness and freedom, and uh, the pursuit of happiness, that you, you deserve comfort and a good life. You, and, you know, uh, you're free to be who you are, to find yourself and your soulmate. And all these narratives. Is that the narrative you're buying? Is these tent poles that our culture throws out there? Or is it maybe darker, deeper narratives that say, I'm not enough. Or I'm in this alone. Um, or I can't trust people. I mean, there's all these narratives that can be there. And so the question is, what are the narratives that are truly influencing and driving your life? Because your behavior, your values, all the things that you think you can change are driven and fueled by all of this. And it's the gospel that sets us free. You shall, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And but here's the thing. The, the truth is a surpassing story which he is witness to. That Jesus lived a life, a perfect life we could never live and died a death we deserved. Why? 
as we, as, as we unite with him, that we would be allowed to be sons and daughters of God. Our story now is rewritten. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer orphans. We're not we're left on our own. And we're no longer destined for judgment and hell and death. But now, a new story is written. That we would be sons and daughters of God, destined for resurrection and eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this, uh, your word. We thank you for the reality that he brings to us. Um, And Lord, so I pray that um, we would be wary of these narratives, these anti-Christ narratives and stories that, that threaten to choke out the gospel in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray, help us to be aware of those. Help us to, to begin to test these things and to under try. Help us to give us eyes to see, Lord. Turn the lights on for us. Help us to walk in the light and not in the darkness. And, Lord, if anybody here hasn't received that 